0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So the question that I want us to think about is what good is having a priest? If we want to know what it is that a priest does, the work of a priest, then our old friend question 43 of the Westminster Larger Catechism can answer that for us. If you remember that, it says that Christ fulfills the office of a priest by doing two things. One of those things is making a sacrifice for sin, and the other thing is making intercession for us. So, a sacrifice for sin, making intercession for us, but the question is, why? Like, what good is that? What is the point of that kind of work? Why is it that we need a priest? The original audience of the book of Hebrews, they knew they needed a priest. They knew that, that they needed someone to fulfill that role. In fact, they probably knew better than we do that they needed a priest. I would suggest that because of the system they'd grown up in, they understood the role of a priest and the use of a priest better than we do, ironically. So, we need to rediscover the value of a priest before we can really understand why it is that Jesus is our high priest. So, these are the words of John Calvin explaining why we need a priest. He says, The chief good of man is to be united to his God, with whom is the fountain of life and of all blessings. Okay, so our chief end is to be united with God. We've talked about the importance of union with Christ. Here's another way of thinking about it. We are created to be in communion with God. This is what we're for. This is a need that we have, but their own unworthiness drives all away from any access to Him. So we have our created purpose. we're meant to be in union with God, but because of sin, we're driven away from Him. We're alienated from him. We cannot enjoy the communion that we were meant to have. because of sin, we don't have access. Then, Calvin says, the peculiar office of a mediator or priest is to bring us help in this respect and to stretch out his hand to us that he may lead us to heaven. So the reason you need a priest is that you're alienated from the God that you should be in union with. You should be with him. You should be communing with him the way Adam and Eve communed with him before the fall. But you can't do that because of sin. There's now an obstacle in that relationship. There's a distance. And you need a priest. You need a mediator to bridge that gap. That's the purpose of a priest. The question is, which priest does that work the best? It's not always as easy to answer as you might think. Imagine a little bit of Old Testament history. The day when Elijah took on all of the prophets of Baal. If you had been there at that moment, what you would have seen, the evidence of your eyes, you would have seen on one side one guy, one threadbare guy that nobody respected or believed in. On the other, you would see the entire religious establishments of your day. You would see all of the authorities, all of the experts, the people who led the nation in worship, the people who had the king's respect when it came to the oracles of God, all of them arrayed on the other side. What would have been the impressive sight? It would have been the the priests of Baal, right? Visually, there were a lot of them, and the things that they did were kind of interesting to watch, But As the day progressed, their ornate prayers, their their little dances, their their cutting of themselves as they became increasingly desperate. This was all good stuff, good theater to watch. It, It looked impressive. In contrast, Elijah. He doesn't have any little dance to dance. He doesn't cut himself. His prayers are not very elaborate or ornate. When his turn comes, all he does is this little thing with water, which seems counterproductive when what you're trying to do is produce fire. Based on the evidence of the eyes, you would have said the powerful priests are these guys. There are more of them. They enjoy more respect, more clout. Even their ritual is more visually impressive than what we see over here. The only difference is who made fire. The only difference was the result. And if we judge the power of a priesthood based on appearances, based on numbers, based on how many sacrifices are made, based on how impressive to the eye they are, then we might be led astray. Because we ought to judge the power of a priesthood based on who makes the fire. Where does the fire come from? Jesus is a better priest than the priests the Hebrews knew of. Even though it was hard. For these early Christians who had had left the the priesthood of their youth, they had left behind that temple system to embrace Christianity. It was kind of hard once they were there not to lapse back into it. It was hard not to miss the evidence of their eyes, the ritual, the, the building. The sacrifices, the vestments, all of the impressive trappings of the Levitical priesthood. It was hard to believe that what was better was was the carpenter who was sacrificed for our sins. It was hard to remain convinced of his superiority. And so, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus is being established. The need is to convince us, to prove to us that as impressive as that priesthood seems, the priesthood of Jesus is so much better. So to do this, he's going to take us back into history. We're going to go back to Genesis 14. We're going to understand a little bit about the priesthood of Melchizedek and how it relates to the priesthood of Jesus. And then he's going to show us ways in which Jesus is a much better priest, a far superior priest, than the Levitical priesthood can offer. So Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, which means that he is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the priests of Aaron. So our text is the whole of chapter 7. Let's look at those first two paragraphs which talk about Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek has been brought up twice before. Last week, when we looked at uh, Hebrews 5.10 through Hebrews 6, that whole text is bookended by these mentions of Melchizedek. Right, the author mentions Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and then he goes on a sort of um, side tangent. He chases a rabbit for a little while, warning us not to become apostates. And then at the end of that, he returns to the idea that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he has to explain who this is and what that means. So This is Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We'll stop there, that first paragraph, and just think about this for a moment. So what's happening here is the author of Hebrews is going back in time. He's going back to Genesis chapter 14. There's a moment in the life of Abraham where this mysterious figure Melchizedek suddenly shows up. If you turn in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis 14, we can look at this moment again. We looked at it two Sundays ago, but it's worth reminding ourselves. This is uh, Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. After his, Abraham's, return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And after that, nothing. No mention of this guy Melchizedek. He doesn't come up before this. He doesn't come up after this either. This is all that we have of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, the only other time that he's mentioned is in Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author of Hebrews has already quoted to us. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And apart from that, we just don't know anything about this guy Melchizedek. Where did he come from? We don't know. All we know is he was a king who was also a priest of the Most High. And when the author of Hebrews digs into the little bit of information we have, He sees some significance in that. There's some significance in his name, Melchizedek. When his name is translated, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then we're told he is also the king of Salem or peace. Some people believe that this Salem is Jerusalem. Others believe that it is Shechem. We don't know. We actually don't have any more information about Melchizedek than what we just read in Genesis 14. But the names are suggestive, aren't they? This guy Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That sounds a little familiar to me. He comes to Abraham carrying bread and wine. He offers a blessing to Abraham. And Abraham responds by giving him a tenth, a tithe of all of the spoils of war. So in that moment, hmm, this is interesting, Melchizedek seems a little Christ-like. Seems a little Christ-like. And the way the author of Hebrews describes him reinforces that. He takes advantage of the fact that he appears nowhere else, that we have no genealogy for him, that we don't know like, what his dates are, when he was born, when he died, any of that stuff. And he, he basically singles out all of the aspects of Melchizedek that make him Christ-like. So he says that in Melchizedek, here's this person who is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He continues a priest forever. The fact that he has no genealogy is significant because Levitical priests, they have genealogy. Levitical priests have to be from the tribe of Levi. They have like like a chain of descent that you can study to determine whether or not they are qualified for office. Jesus famously doesn't have that. So if you're holding up Jesus as a better priest, the first obstacle to that argument is you've got to explain how Jesus comes by being a priest in the first place. Because Jesus is not a Levite. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, which is not the right tribe for a priest to come from. But it just so happens there is a priest right at the beginning, long before these priests of Levi, who, like Jesus, has no genealogy. He has no no descent from earlier priests, and no priests come after him in his line. Here is a type of Christ that we find in Genesis. A historical forerunner of Jesus. Like Christ, Melchizedek is a priest without a lineage. Keep reading in the next paragraph. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, men who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. He was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So you see what's going on here. Jesus' priesthood is not only being asserted, but the superiority of his priesthood over the Levitical priesthood is being shown, and it's being shown through this incident between Melchizedek and Abraham. It's kind of interesting. Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. You're maybe thinking, well, author of Hebrews, you don't seem to understand how this works exactly. Uh, But you have to see that he's speaking about Abraham in a specific way. Uh, In theology, we would say he's speaking of Abraham as like a federal head, the head of his people. You know, so Paul can talk about the idea that we all fall in Adam, like like Adam falls and all who are in Adam, all who are represented, all that he acts on behalf of fall in him. Just as all who are in Christ live because of him, Christ can act, can obey on our behalf as our head. Here, the idea is Abraham is acting not only on behalf of Abraham, but on behalf of all who are descended from him. What does Abraham do in relation to Melchizedek? He acknowledges him as a superior. So what he does is he receives a blessing from Melchizedek. Well, blessings are given by superiors to inferiors. If you receive the blessing, that means the one who blesses you is greater because he has the power to bless you. So for Abraham... To receive that blessing from Melchizedek is Abraham acknowledging, you are greater than I am. And then Abraham responds by giving the tithe. but He pays the tithe to the one who is greater to him. So in both cases, Abraham is signaling that this priest, Melchizedek, is greater than I am. Abraham is the great-grandfather of Levi, from whom all of the Levitical priests are descended. So the author of Hebrews is basically saying, hey, Levitical priests, not only did Abraham pay tribute to Melchizedek, but you did too. These priests, who seemed so impressive, when Abraham bent the knee and received the blessing, they did too. Abraham acted in them. And so, this priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi that came later. It's better this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham, the inheritor of all the promises that the the children of Abraham looked up to, Abraham received the blessing from this man, Melchizedek. So to say that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek is to tie him to a superior priesthood, a better priesthood than the Levitical. Priesthood. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. Christ is greater than them all. The Levitical priesthood is not only inferior, but it actually could not deliver on the things that we need a priest to do for us. Therefore, we need a better priest than what the the Levitical priesthood could offer the Levitical priesthood, it administered the law, but it came through the law, but there was a limit to what the law can do for us. So we pick up in the next paragraph. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which... We draw near to God. So the Levit- Levitical priesthood is associated with the law. It was in the era of Moses that the law was revealed. And Aaron, the first Levitical priest, was the brother of Moses. So the priesthood of Melchizedek actually goes back before that. Just as the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 predates the giving of the law. But the giving of the law is something that happened within this larger history of the the promise of grace that was made. So, the author of Hebrews is taking advantage of Psalm 110 here to show the inadequacy of the the priesthood that came with the law. So, that priesthood was established in the book of Exodus. That comes after the book of Genesis. The book of Psalms, that comes after the book of Exodus. And in Psalm 110... Written much later than the book of Exodus, we find you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the question is, why do we need that? We already have the Levitical priesthood. We already have the priest who administer the law. Why do we need a better priesthood? Clearly we do. Otherwise, the psalmist wouldn't be predicting this future priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. There would be no need. Right? In Jewish scholarship, the way that Melchizedek was understood is that when Melchizedek and Abraham met, something passed from Melchizedek to Abraham, and that was the, like, the authority of the priesthood. So they saw the Levitical priest as having inherited the priesthood of Melchizedek. Abraham had sort of taken that from him and delivered it to his line. So there's a continuity there. There's no need for there to be further priests after the order of Melchizedek because the Levitical priesthood fills that role. Yet, the Psalmist says, "No, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn this; He won't go back on it. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, because that comes later. The author of Hebrews is saying, there must have been something not up to snuff about the Levitical priesthood. You're putting all of your confidence in this priesthood, but the Bible itself, scripture itself suggests that something better." is going to come. And that wouldn't be the case if the law could deliver what we need from a priest. If what we need from a priest is to bridge the gap between ourselves and God, to heal the gap created by sin, here what we're discovering is the priests who served under the law, they couldn't do that work. As committed to them as you wanted to be, as dedicated to the temple system of sacrifices as you were, it would not bridge the gap. It could not mediate the distance between you and God. As he says, uh, under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. But the law, as we saw at the end of, of the text we just read, it's described as being weak and useless. Weak and useless. Now, this would have been a shock to Old Testament authors who are constantly talking about the greatness of the law. I want to live by your law, the law, the law, the law. And now suddenly it's been spoken of as if it's weak and useless? Well, in what context is the law weak and useless in the context of perfecting us? The law isn't useless if the question you have is, uh, what does the holy character of God look like? Like, What does God condemn as evil? What does God see as good? If those are the kinds of questions we have, the law can illuminate those things for us. But if the question is, how can I bridge the gap between myself and God? How can I enter into His presence and draw near? The law can't get you there. The law cannot do it. If anything, what the law does is it shows you how big that gap is. Right? The law is what shows you your need for a better priesthood than the priesthood of the law. Because there is a futility built into this process of law. So Jesus is a different kind of priest. It's true. If the way you judge priesthood is who has the right lineage, who has the right descent, then Jesus isn't going to look right to you. But if you judge priesthood based on power, The power to do what must be done, then Jesus is the only priest who can fill the office. There is no other who can do this. I mean, this is striking. The contrast, this is um, in that second paragraph, verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is a priest based on the power of an indestructible life. He could not be destroyed. He could not be killed. The grave could not hold him, which actually wasn't true for any priest who'd gone before him. None of the Levitical priests possessed this indestructible life. They had their priesthood because of their lineage, their descent. Their patrimony. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. They had the tradition. He had the power to do what had to be done for that priesthood to mean anything at all. And because of that, the law is set aside. It's not that there's no use to the law. It's not that the law has become pointless now and that we should just take the Old Testament out of our Bibles and throw it away. But rather, the law as an instrument of redemption has been shown to be weak, powerless. And so the way that we use the law has changed. The way that we look to the law has changed. It's been set aside in favor of a better hope. But if the book of Hebrews is about hope and where our hope should be, how much hope we should have, now we're being told there's a better hope that has come than that old one. Or we have a better hope than we had before, because we're in Christ. And that hope gives us the power to do something. If we remember our quote from Calvin at the beginning, is really essential to what being a priest is all about. It gives us the power to draw near to God. That's what this whole thing is about. Our need for a priest is so that we can draw near to God, because without one, without a mediator, we cannot do it. We cannot approach. If we have a mediator, we can if we have a mediator who can bridge that distance, that's what this better hope is. In Christ, we have a better hope to draw near to God. The Levitical priesthood, it couldn't do that. It couldn't deliver on the expectations we had of it. We needed a better priest. than Jesus, we found him. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better priest in a lot of ways, but specifically there are a few things that the author of Hebrews is going to point out. Again, showing why it's better to have Jesus as a priest than to have this Levitical priesthood to rely on. The priesthood of Jesus is assured by the impregnable guarantee of the divine oath. And unlike the Levitical priesthood, it is permanent. The priesthood of Jesus is a permanent priesthood. This is Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. When Calvin talks about the nature of priesthood, another thing he says about priesthood and the need for priesthood is that a priest is made in order that he may be the surety of a covenant, the guarantee of a covenant. So when you see a priesthood established by God, the purpose of that priesthood is to act as a kind of guarantee of a promise that's been made. So when you think about the Levitical priesthood and the system of sacrifices, these were all meant to give people assurance that God's promise to save would be kept. But you were given these visible signs, and those visible signs pointed to the covenant promise of God. Because in our weakness, we tend to doubt. In our weakness, we, we don't have the certainty in God that we once did. And so the priesthood is given as a kind of guarantee. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit in similar language. The, the Holy Spirit is a seal, sign and seal of promises that God made. So think of it that way. Right? That This priesthood is a sort of visible guarantee of a promise That God has made. So, you might be interested in which promises are strongest. And here, the author of Hebrews, who's already shown us Genesis 14, now goes back to Psalm 110 and looks at the nature of Christ's priesthood. And he notices something. That God establishes the priesthood of Christ with an oath with this covenant promise that he makes. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That is not how Levitical priests were made. God did not enter into a covenant with individual Levitical priests. God didn't come down to Aaron and say, the Lord has sworn it and will not change his mind. You, Aaron, are a priest forever after the order of Aaron. No. Those priests inherited their office through descent. This priest received his office through covenant, through oath, where God swears to him that you are a priest forever. That is a stronger priesthood. The way that it's established is much stronger. It has a stronger guarantee, which is what makes Jesus, as far as the guarantee goes, he's the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews, by the way, that the word covenant has actually been used right out in the open. The idea has been latent in the text. We've talked about covenant before, but this is the first time. Right? Already, earlier in the text that we've just read, we saw that Jesus offers a better hope. But now, specifically, the nature of that hope is being defined. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. This covenant that Jesus is the only mediator of, this covenant of grace, it is better. Than what went before. It is more reliable. It promises more. And it delivers what it promises. This is better than what we had before. And so the question becomes. Why cling to what you had before? Why cling to the insecurity. To the uselessness of what you had before. When something far greater is before you. One commentator when he talks about the divine oath. He, he describes it as an impregnable guarantee. I love that because we've been told already about the indestructible life of Christ. And the idea is that if, if the anchor of your hope is the one who lived this indestructible life, then the nature of that guarantee, it is impregnable. Impregnable is a rich word. It, it speaks to like, inability to be conquered. Right, If you have a fortress whose walls cannot be breached, that fortress, it is impregnable. That's the nature of the guarantee that Christ represents. Nothing that comes against him can topple him. Like Nothing can break him. Nothing can, can separate us from that anchor of our salvation. This is a strong priesthood, the strongest imaginable. And it's also permanent. The thing about an indestructible life is it doesn't end. Jesus keeps on being the priest. And that makes him very different from what went before. Right, Levitical priests, they died. This is in verse twenty-seven. I love the way this is written. He, speaking of Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the priest who sacrifices himself, right? He makes that sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, but his life is indestructible. So after he's made that sacrifice once for all, he continues in the role of priest. He continues to do that priestly work. That's not the way it worked for those who went before him. Verse 23 says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Maybe you're impressed by the lineage. Maybe you're impressed by the number of priests that are arrayed. But you have to understand the reason there are so many is you need so many because they keep dying. But in Jesus, the priest who makes the sacrifice for sin continues to intercede to this very day. He continues in that office forever. This is what it means when it says he can save you to the uttermost, like from start to finish. It's not that Jesus, you know, began a work of salvation in you. Then after Jesus, other people came along and they continued that lineage of salvation. No, it's the same person. It's the same person from start to finish. It's Christ all along the way. There is no need for another priest after the order of Melchizedek because the one we have isn't going to die. He will be there forever making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Again, security. Security to know that the priest who offered himself up for sin continues to make intercession for us forever. He doesn't die. He is the one sacrifice and he is the one mediator who continues to make intercession for us. When we think about Jesus and we think about the work of Christ and the things that he, he does for us. I think it's natural for us to think about the cross and the work of atonement on the cross. When we talk about Jesus and the work of Jesus, it's natural for us to focus on on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But that's not all that Jesus does for us. Jesus died once for our sins, making a sacrifice that need never be made again. But He continues to work for us every moment of every day. He continues to intercede for us. He continues to bridge the gap created by sin. The gap between the creature and the Creator. It's that abiding work of Jesus that we need to remember. It's not enough. Let's put it this way. It's not enough to see Jesus as the sacrifice. We must also see Jesus as the one who makes intercession. Jesus as our high priest. We need no other high priest but him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.